with Tuppence for paper and strings You can have your own set of wings With your feet on the ground You're a bird in flight With your fist holding tight To the string of your kite Welcome to T Hanks for the Memories. I am your host Darren, and today we are once more returning to uh, Disney. Obviously, Tom has done a lot of work for them in recent years, and my guests have been uh, on episodes that have included a lot of Disney stuff because they are uh, Disney fans. Uh, but obviously, we'll see how much of a fan they are of this film because we are talking about saving Mr. Banks, uh, the second time that Tom has saved someone. Uh, last time, of course, it was Private Ryan. Uh, the film was released over here, it says on Wikipedia, on the 29th of November 2013, but for some, I don't know how, but I saw it on the 11th, and I don't think I saw it at, at like some kind of preview, so I don't know what happened there. Uh, Wikipedia is probably incorrect in this particular matter. Um, obviously, we, I don't know, again, I don't know why, but we managed to get it two weeks before it came out in America, it came out in America in December, obviously looking for that uh, Oscar corridor to get some nominations for stuff. Um, and then it came out on the 9th of January in Australia. Uh, feels appropriate given that half the film is set in Australia. Um, and uh, Tom is not getting top billing on the poster. It goes to, it goes to Emma Thompson. Um, uh, for, I, which is kind of... I, I, I mean, I guess... Uh, maybe we'll discuss about who is the main character in this thing. But I think that makes sense. Um, and it made a lot of money. Uh, considering that this is like a Disney film, and they, you know, I, I guess most of it's only set in a few rooms. It's not super expensive. Only cost thirty-five million. Made one hundred and seventeen. So, uh, you know, we can call that a success. Um, and joining me to talk about it today, returning guests Andrew and Kestra Doraski. Hello again. Hello. Hi. I mean, obviously, it's not hiding anything to say that you're fans of Disney. Uh, no, yeah, it's, we is... we put that out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that is that is the subject of your own podcast uh, mm -hmm. is Disney so you know that makes makes complete sense um this is the first time that Walt Disney was portrayed on film um and there was a, a minor controversy because obviously he was known for being a chain smoker um and in the film there's literally no smoking and, and never at any point does Tom Hanks spend his time smoking uh, which was because if they had done that, this would have been an R-rated film in America, and they wanted to avoid that. So, which I understand because I personally hate smoking. Really, get some. I just cannot stand it. Um, well, and so. and it it also makes sense because Walt made a point of never smoking. In like he was never shown to be smoking. Right. Yeah. He He hated yeah. the fact that he was addicted and to cigarettes, and and was very pointed about. Okay, I'm never going to let that be seen. And they and they make a reference. Yeah, to Tom Hanks makes a reference to it as he's putting out a yeah, cigarette. He's, he's not smoking out. it, but he does put it out. Yeah. Um, and so it's very much in the in the in the public appearance of Walt in the public persona of Walt to like we're we can address it, but like we're not going to show it. Yeah. And uh, of course, um, uh, I think uh, he did end up dying of lung cancer. He did. He did. So, yeah, <laughs> so probably not best to remind people of that in a film that is kind of, I don't know, 25 percent a Walt Disney like biopic. Like it's um, like the breakup of this film is very odd. Um, and I should say, um, I mean, to me, the most fascinating thing is 
where the film came from because you would think oh this is disney coming up with some kind of propaganda about what disney about this film what you know whatever that is um but no uh it came from uh kelly marcel the writer who after this adapted the screenplay for 50 shades of gray which which is an odd direction for someone to go in um and then she was yeah that's a that's a yeah that's a very different dynamic she was she was kicked off the sequels by E.L. James, who decided to have her husband come in and do the adaptions of the sequels. Uh, and then she went on to do Venom. And Venom Let There Be Carnage. She's she Along with T- Tom Hardy, she's the only other writer on Venom Let There Be Carnage. And in between that, uh, she came up with a story for Cruella. So obviously tying back to Disney. Uh, along with uh, Aline Brosh McKenna, who did 27 Dresses and was a uh, showrunner for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Um, and Steve Zissis, who was uh, on a TV show called Togetherness, where he was with one of the Duplass brothers. He was the one who wasn't the Duplass brothers on that. Uh, but he's a he's a friend of them and you know he's been in a lot of their films. Um, so that's an odd combination of people writing Cruella. Uh, you know, which was a uh, film that I enjoyed, I would say, for about 75% of it. The other rest, I was a bit bored, but, you know, it's those a long are, film. But those are some wild careers. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, but, but the and, and the thing is, um, I mean, obviously, I, mean, I don't know if you're familiar with The Blacklist. Obviously, it's about, you know, the best unproduced screenplays. Um, and it, as voted on by, like, you know, you know, production assistants in Hollywood. And to get on the blacklist, like your film has to be a, like a little bit kind of crazy. Um, I, at this point, I can't remember other films that were on the blacklist. But if you if you were to look into what films were, you know, voted the best on the blacklist, they are films that have kind of slightly odd premises. Um, and I think, you know, this like kind of came to Marcel where she wanted it to be uh, kind of a harsher story about the behind the scenes stuff and basically about the relationship between pl travers and walt disney in the film it's it's very much softened because pl travers hated what happened with mary poppins and in her will it was like you cannot make a like another film based on mary poppins you know for like which is why it took them so long to do a sequel because you know Mm -hmm. obviously disney wanted to do a sequel to this like straight away like it was one of the it was a huge success for disney um but she was like no um so, you know, the, there's a second writer on this, um, Sue Smith, who's Australian. Um, and I think she was kind of responsible for some of the backstory stuff that's put in there. Um, but, yeah, this was like meant to be a more like a more confrontational film between the two leads. Like it was meant to be about them kind of arguing and fighting and stuff. And there's a little bit of that still in here. But, you know, we also have Paul Giamatti and his disabled daughter. And like this, like there's kind of stuff that it, it feels like it's been Disneyfied a little bit. And obviously... The, you know, when it was written by Kelly Marcel, she she was like, she, you know, she had no rights to anything that Disney did. So, like, the issue with selling the script was there's basically only one production company that could make this. And it's pretty much Walt Disney. Like, there's, it's not like yeah. 20th Century Fox or Warner Brothers were going to be making this film because that would just be insane. Um, so, you know, I it's kind of, yeah, I mean, I think her story is kind of interesting. And she, obviously she's British. Um because you'd expect the writer of Venom and Venom Let There Be Carnage to be British. Um, uh, and like I said, Sue Smith was Australian. Um, and then we have the director, John Lee Hancock, who I, I mean, uh, I, I'm not sure that I've really, I, I mean, I don't, I mean, I've seen Snow White and the Huntsman and that's pretty much it. And I really haven't seen any of his films. 
um obviously i know the blind side was like the big hit that kind of got him this gig um and obviously after this he immediately made the founder uh with um michael keaton uh playing ray Kroc, um who you know much like disney not really a great person but you know the story kind of in fact i think i'm trying to think if one of the guys out of this is in the founder i think one of them yes bj novak is in the founder as well um uh, so he's you know obviously in this playing one of the sherman brothers in that he plays just some executive at disney um you know because nick offerman and john carroll lynch play the mcdonald brothers who mm -hmm. ray crock kind of you know screwed them out of all their royalties and basically uh yeah not a nice guy um so it's, i don't know it's weird that john lee hancock has got this kind of uh, I haven't, like I say, I haven't really seen his other stuff. He did like a film called The Highwoman, which has got Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson in. And don't know that at all. Me either. Yeah. So I think The Blind Side is really the only thing that most people would kind of um, know him for, or this film. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, he's he's got connections to Kevin Costner from before because he wrote the script for A Perfect World, which is a Clint Eastwood film where Kevin Costner kidnaps a kid or something. I I can't say I've seen it. And he also did the script for Midnight in Garden of Good and Evil, which is obviously an adaptation of a book. Um, so he's like a former writer turned director. Um, but I think really, like, it's not like there's anything in this film where you're like, oh, that's definitely like a John Lee Hancock. Like, I, as a director, I don't think there's... Yeah, I, I don't think there's anything really that he's, like, bringing to it. Uh, mm -hmm. Interestingly, we've got Thomas Newman, who obviously has scored a few films with Tom. Um, coming in and uh, Jason Schwartzman is in the cast and his dad John Schwartzman is the cinematographer on this um, so uh, Jason Schwartzman of course being the ultimate nepotism baby like does not get more nepotizzy than Jason Schwartzman um, you know. but I also enjoy him so I'm conflicted oh, yeah, on, no. on that one sometimes it's the nepotism <laughs> stuff and you're like oh darn but with him it's like well, he's not the lead of a lot of stuff, so no. you know it, it feels a lot less. It feels a lot less like he's taking jobs away from other people. It's like he gets he gets you know secondary and tertiary roles, and I always enjoy him with it. So I'm if, in his case, I'm a lot more okay. <laughs> with, with <laughs> he his... will be starring with with Tom in Asteroid City, which is the new Wes Anderson film that's coming out some point in 2022 or 2023. But he's built a relationship with with Wes Anderson at this point, I think. Too. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. so out of all the the various nepotism individuals in in Hollywood, I'm like, I feel more okay about Jason Schwartzman than, than many <laughs> others. Yeah, I mean, you know, your mother is from The Godfather and Rocky, and you know your you know your your father is a cinematographer, and obviously your uncle is Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> so and your cousin oh, is Nicholas right. Cage. He's in the He's in the Coppola yeah. dynasty. He's in technically. Yeah, he's in. T he's in two. He's in two families uh, that you know gave him nepotism. Obviously, his other cousin is Sophia Coppola. Um, so yeah, uh, you know. Uh, but again, like you know, John uh, John Schwartzman. You know, he's a he's a good you know or Jack as people call him. He's a he's a good cinematographer. You know, so. Um, but uh, yeah, and of course, uh, Jason Schwartzman played the drums for Phantom Planet, who did the theme to the OC. Uh, the song California, which obviously is the setting of a lot of the stuff in this film. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think 
again like the idea that they, like tom hanks apparently spent a lot of time with the disney family and you know went and listened to a ton of recordings of disney so he could get his voice just right and he grew the mustache and they apparently trimmed it so it was the exact same dimensions as what disney's mustache <laughs> so mm-hmm. they went to a lot of trouble for what is effectively like a minor co-starring role in this film <laughs> like uh we, we could talk to you know talk a bit more about it as we get into it but like yeah uh, as I said, he's not getting—he's not getting top billing. It's Emma Thompson. This is a se- effectively meant to be the story of P.L. Travers, um, you know, Pamela uh, or Pam, as Walt Disney insists on calling her, which you know she obviously hates, um, or Mrs. as Paul Giamatti <laughs> keeps calling her. Which I like. That's the nice touch that she corrects him to say Mrs. and then he just he calls her that. He just Mrs. Ever. <laughs> yeah, he he makes a choice. Um, yeah. Um, and we also, I mean, we've also obviously got Colin Farrell in this and Ruth Wilson. I love Ruth Wilson in everything. Um, you know, she's uh, a wonderful actress. In this, she does practically nothing. <laughs> I mean, like, it could have literally been anyone else in that role. Uh, and Colin Farrell, um, obviously, everyone knows. It's really weird because they've gone with, like, an Irish and English actress to play Australian parents. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, an odd choice. Um, we obviously have Paul Giamatti as as Ralph, uh, who drives P.L. Travers around when she's in L.A. Uh, as we said, Jason Schwartzman, B.J. Novak, they play the Sherman brothers, one of whom was still alive when this film was made, and he is credited as a consultant at the end. Um, and obviously he was the one who made, a, you know, kind of when they were kind of rewriting the script a little bit, he kind of made all those scenes where they played the songs. He was like, yes, this is what we did. This is, you know, how it went. And they also had obviously a lot of recordings to rely on. So, you know, some of those scenes are word for word. Um, and we have Bradley Which, Whitford. I'm glad playing... that they still have the, the recordings because a lot of times people oh, yeah. like destroy those kind of things. And I think it's awesome that they still have those. I think Walt Disney was very careful about preserving a lot of stuff. Um, just as a like a film producer, you know, he just wanted to. That's why they've still got all like the original animation from Snow White yeah. and all that kind of stuff, haven't they? So they're very, you know they're very careful about preserving stuff. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, notably uh, Kathy Baker not doing much as as Disney's assistant. She kind of just, which is weird because I lo- I love Kathy Baker in everything I've seen her in. So uh, in this, she kind of doesn't do like a huge amount. Um, more Melanie Paxson, um, who I haven't really seen in anything other than this, uh, as Dolly, who's like very enthusiastic, and obviously P.L. Travers uh, does not like her uh, for her enthusiasm, <laughs> which uh, is a funny dynamic. Um, and then we have Rachel Griffiths appearing in, what, 2% of this film, <laughs> playing the inspiration for Mary Poppins, but not really. We'll get into that when she uh, arrives. Um, it was actually a different aunt, but... I guess they wanted to simplify it and keep it, um, you know, keep it. I, I I don't know why they changed it. It's just really weird. But it was a different aunt. It was not her mother's aunt. It was her father's aunt. On the it was on the father's side rather than the mother's side. So, uh, but she uh, she's barely in this film. Uh, you know, I love Rachel Griffiths. Obviously, big fan of Six Feet Under. Uh, she's wonderful in that. Uh, you know, a great actress. Again, Australian. And then when she arrives, she puts on like a weird British accent. So. They seem to be casting people for the wrong nations in this film a lot. Um, I don't know why, but I guess it was a choice. Um, uh, yeah, so there was mention in the film of Roy Disney, who I think was the like co-founder of the Walt Disney Company um, and also was responsible for some of the bigger projects like Disney World or Disneyland, whichever one. Are they in Disney World or Disney? I never know which one, which side of the country <laughs> so, is which. So Disneyland is what we see in this movie with California. 
And then yes. they were working very, very heavily on Disney World. Um, and they, I think they hint at it in this film. Um, but when Walt yeah. dies, they're working on Disney World and Roy takes over, takes over and, and kind of like keeps running the company until that gets finished. Yeah. And, and, then, they... and then he's like, okay. Like the last, the last dream of my brother is is kind of wrapped up. I'm gonna retire. Now. He's he's quite old, and uh, they and he names it I mean, Walt said, Disney World, yeah, in honor of his brother. And, and, and it, it took several years after after Walt's death, and yeah. Roy was in his seventies when he finally retired. Yeah, and then his his son, uh, Roy, also his name is Roy, uh, yeah. took over the company Roy, Roy later. Jr. Uh, yeah, yeah, Roy. Um, um, Roy Marie was in e. charge of things kind of in the '90s and early 2000s. Yep, I remember seeing him. I, I, like Roy Disney Jr. I remember him seeing. You know, like him, like being in charge of stuff. I remember that being a. Um, one I mean, of his big things of... was was doing like Fantasia 2000. Yeah, he like did With... the introduction yeah. for it and stuff. And so yeah, he was he was in some of the public publicity materials, um, in the early 2000s. Yeah, uh, before it all turned into the world's largest corporation as it is now buying up everybody else um obviously you know i mean i, I literally yesterday went to see doctor strange so it's not like i'm not giving disney money um you know like i mean what what can we do you know mm-hmm. uh you know they've bought everything so i also saw the trailer for avatar 2 which i have literally zero interest in but it looks nice, so you know. But obviously, that's also Disney. But they're pretending it's not Disney by sticking up that whole yeah Fox thing. And you're like, stop pretending. Just I guess they don't want to put they don't want to put like the Disney uh, castle in front of like an Avatar film, which is an interesting choice. Um, but speaking of the Disney castle, that's what we call a smooth segue. Um, they open this up not with the the gigantic you know three minute long Disney castle we're used to seeing in front of most films these days. Uh, but just with like an older version of the Disney logo, uh, which was I thought was a nice touch. I'm not sure, not being an expert on Disney myself, exactly when this logo was from. But I, you know, it wasn't animated; it was just a simple logo. And we kind of jumped, like, you know, I know CinemaSins complain about extremely long logos, and I'm not a fan of like seeing like 20 different logos before a film. So I was happy that it's like, oh yeah, just one simple Disney logo straight into the film, saving Mr. Banks. Nobody gets credited. There's no like opening titles, nothing. Yeah. We're straight into the film. We're in Australia um, in 1906. There's no messing about with this, you know, uh, straight into the film through some clouds um, with the kind of uh, chim chimney kind of overture uh, and narration from Colin Farrell, for, you know, telling us that there's winds in the east and all the rest of it, as we know from. Uh, which is effectively Bert's opening narration from Mary Poppins, if I remember that correct. Mm-hmm. It's been a few years since I've seen Mary Poppins, but I think that's... Or maybe it's also the narration from Lin-Manuel Miranda from Mary Poppins Returns. But I don't remember what his narration was like at the start of that film. But yeah, so I like that we get straight into the film. Obviously a bit confusing because they have like palm trees, but we're in Australia. And I'm like, I don't know if that's correct, but uh, you know, I'll go with it. Um, and it kind of dissolves, like we see this young girl uh, looking up towards the sky and it dissolves very quickly to P.L. Travers and we know that it is now 1961 we're in London. So we established yeah, so these they, two different time periods that are going to be important throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, that I think it's good for them to like do that first bit so that we get a sense of, like, okay, there's going to be parallel stories going on. Yeah. And we're meant to, to draw some connections. And 
especially because um, they're going to be using different names. <laughs> it's very, very helpful yeah. for us to establish, like, okay, like, the same same people. Okay, got it. <laughs> like, yeah. these are the same person at different times uh, in their lives, and um, even though you're going to hear different names for them, you know that you are telling the story. And I think as well that, like, um, uh, you know, a kind of a theme of the film, as we said, PL constantly correcting people to call her Mrs. Travers, mm-hmm. like, over and over. Like, every single person she meets. And obviously Walt Disney was a fan of calling everybody by their first names. So the, the ultimate first name boss. Yeah. Yeah. She's not gonna. She's not gonna countenance that. Although, like, she stops kind of correcting him, and he he kind of adopts this thing of calling her either Pamela or Pam, uh, you know, depending on the circumstance. And, I think and he tolerates her. And he tolerates her calling him uh, Mr. Disney, which normally he would have corrected <laughs> he, everyone into into saying have. Walt. Yeah. And so they both say, sort of like settling into tolerating, not getting their preference. <laughs> yeah, and obviously to distinguish the fact that obviously P.L. Travers, not her name. Uh, in any way her name was Helen Goff so obviously you know her surname is a tribute to her father uh, which is something that is revealed kind of later in the film mm-hmm. um, and, and in fact they do make a note of never referring to Colin Farrell's character by his first name for most of the film um, which which I thought was kind of clever like they they, they keep that away so that it becomes a, a kind of small reveal later on um, and so, obviously, to distinguish the two, we, you know, as we go through the summary, you know, we have Ginty, which is the nickname that is given to uh, Helen when she's young. And then, obviously, PL is how, you know, or Pamela is how, you know, or Mrs. Travers, you know, is how she's she's called when she's older. Um, so we, we have the kind of inciting incident of the film, which is uh, the uh, Dermot Russell, the, the kind of publisher of PL Travers, shows up and says, basically, you've got no money. Uh, she's had to fire her, um, you know, her kind of her maid. And he's like, you you've you've got no money. Uh, Walt Disney is offering you a lot of money for the rights to uh, Mary Poppins. Please sell him the rights and make lots of money so you can finally employ people and, you know, maybe start writing some more books. I don't think any of this setup is completely correct. Um, You know, because before she flew out to L.A., uh, Walt Disney had already secured the rights to the to the film. Like, it's not a realistic situation that he would kind of spend this much energy on paying, um, you know, the um, the brothers. What's their surname? The, uh, Sherman. the, the Sherman, Sherman brothers. brothers. Yeah, he wouldn't be paying the Sherman brothers tons of money to write a bunch of songs for a film that they didn't have the rights to. But obviously, you know, there's some licenses taken in this film where they, uh, the whether or not she's going to sign the rights over becomes. A, a kind of point of contention like she has to be convinced by um by Walt Disney that you know the film is going to be good and you know she she has some stipulations that she wants to insist on um and you know some of those I think are her testing the limits of what Walt Disney will do like the insistence on not having the color red in the film which mm-hmm. uh I, you know like it, it just seems like she's being deliberately difficult um uh, but you know, obviously, she she's concerned about the characterization of the different films. She doesn't want Mary Poppins to be, you know, uh, kind of. She keeps going on about like you know people dancing around and all that kind of. So she's she's not happy with, with what the film could become, and apparently it took twenty years, which is correct for the for you know for Disney basically spent that much time, you know, from before like you know just after Snow White until this film came out, he was basically spending all his time trying to convince her 
um, to sell the rights. And she did before they started writing everything for the film. But obviously mm-hmm. for this, you know, for the, for the purposes of this fiction, she hasn't done that yet. And, you know, her agent is trying to, um, you know, persuade her of that. And I think obviously we also get the echo of the fact that she's had to fire a maid. And we see in Australia um, that uh, Ginty and her, her family have to um, move out of their home where they had what appears to be two maids uh, working for them, one of whom is referred to as Katie Nana as they leave, um, and they have to move into a farmhouse, uh, which they do by walking the entire distance, it seems to be implied. I mean, uh, they, they walk to the, walk to train, the train, and then it's like <laughs> yeah. a 16-hour train to the end of the line, and then they they walk, I guess, from the train station to the farmhouse. Yeah. There's a lot of walking, though. I'm like, that's... The, I mean, you know, obviously he tries to make it fun, uh, does Colin Farrell, um, by talking about how it's, you know, a walking train. And uh, I'm like, okay, but still, both ends, it seems like a lot of walking is going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, yeah, this is, you know, throughout this film, uh, the flashbacks kind of pop in and out to relate to different moments. Uh, and obviously the thought of her having fired her maid, which, of course, she you know brings back at the end. We find out that the maid is exactly like one of the maids in the film. Um, you know, she you know, the kind of the, the the lack of money is the is the final thing that convinces her that maybe she should go to L.A. Um, you know, if I mean, quite frankly, everything's going to be paid for. So why not just have a vacation in L.A. for a few weeks and, you know, at a very luxurious hotel, first class flight. Um, you know, everything being paid for, being driven wherever she wants, um, which, uh, you know, as an Englishman myself, uh, it is just this weird thing that Americans do drive literally everywhere. Whereas in England, um, like if we need to pop to the shops, we will just walk to the shops. Uh, mm. We aren't going to be jumping in a car, but apparently a lot of Americans will jump in a car for pretty much any journey. Pretty uh, much anywhere also, in America. That's going to yeah. be the, the... I mean, outside of the the major East Coast cities where you do have some pretty reasonable abilities yeah. to, to like get what you need. So like New York, you can, you yeah. can drop, you can, you can go down and you can find a, um, a bodega, a convenience yeah. store. In New York but, city, most people don't, uh, drive, but just about everywhere else, the space has been decompressed as they developed it. And, and so you, like the ability to, to pop down to the shop is not, Nearly as significant. And and LA in particular is is like not super walking friendly. I'd say that's less walking friendly than 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 average. Yeah. Our closest grocery store is actually not that far away, but But, it's kind of a hassle to walk there because of the busy busy road that's there Mm -hmm. and um and though and it's not the one that we typically like to shop at because it doesn't have everything that we like and want. So we go to places that are like a mile away or so. <laughs> so it's still not, it, yeah. it's not a, a huge drive. And yeah, so, and that's in our case, just by happenstance. It's not by an actual design of like, well, this is going to be in walking distance for a lot of people. It's, you know, it just happens to be within walking distance for us. Um, so yeah, it, it is a But it would take us like a, 20 a, minutes to get to the... Uh, actual store to like walk to and yeah. back yeah I'd, I'd say it's probably yeah it's not a five minute walk no um yeah whereas i've literally got shops at the end of my road i can yeah. walk to them in two minutes and um, and, and yes yeah, so, so it's just a, a, a significant difference in yes. 
um, yeah. in, in Europe and, like, and They America. drive everywhere. Yeah, she she notices that everyone drives everywhere, and even when they're on the lot, and she starts Which, walking, they jump into like a golf cart and drive her, um, you know, straight away. Like it's, it, you know, she keeps saying, "I can walk," you know, and they, they just don't want to let her walk anywhere. Uh, which you know is obviously an amusing um, you know note, um, mm-hmm. but this uh, this allows us to have uh, what I think is a fictional character of Ralph, um, as played by Paul Giamatti, not an Oscar winner at this point. You know, and I don't know why, because he's given some great performances in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not least of which, of course, uh, was... Did in... he not win for Cinderella Man? I don't think he... No, I don't think I he I thought has. he got Best Supporting Actor for Cinderella Man. Maybe it was only a nomination. I thought he got Best Supporting uh, Actor for Cinderella Man. I know, he's only nominated. Oh, no. He what a crime. Uh, yeah, he has yet to win. Uh, apparently, like, uh, you know... Um, yeah, he's only it, got one nomination. In my head, for he's an, an Academy Oscar Award. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he's been nominated for you know uh, Golden Globes a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's won a couple of those. Um, of course, one for John Adams, mm-hmm. um, and the other for Barney's version, which is a film that I saw at the cinema and also own, and is very, very Canadian. Um, but yeah, his own his like you say for Cinderella Man, that his best supporting actor, that is the only Academy Award he's ever been nominated for, oh. which is ridiculous. Just does not make any sense. He's um, an amazing I mean, actor, and he does a really good job here. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is it. Like this, like the whole thing where he keeps saying the sun came out for you, the sun came like, and you you're like, what on earth is he going on about? Like, and the fact that P.L. Travers is like the sun always comes up. Like it's it's not picking who it comes out for. Um, and obviously we find out later on in the film, you know, why uh, he's made that choice. But uh, apparently around the time of Sideways, this is a, you know, a slight, slightly off the beat, but um, it, it was thought that he would get nominated along with Thomas Hayden Church and Virginia Madsen. Uh, obviously he would be nominated for Best Actor and Thomas Hayden Church was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. It was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Director. Like, two of the co-stars are nominated, you know, like, the screenplay you know was nominated like like the film was you know it was it was oscar bait in the the you know the biggest sense um but apparently leading up to uh when the nominations were go- going to be announced um you know uh it, it was kind of like apparently people have been talking up the fact that paul giamatti should have won that year and uh, apparently paul giamatti was like you know after american splendor he was like oh this is it this is a shot and apparently he'd done a bit of campaigning to get himself nominated and some people were like not particularly happy about that um and there was like a, a kind of a bit of a kind of backlash straight away and you know some of the the mem- members of the academy apparently there was something going around where they you know there was kind of a bit of a negative campaign about paul giamatti thinking he should win um, and I don't think any of that was kind of completely true. Obviously, it was a good performance. And I'd, as I said, pretty much everything else in that film was getting nominated. Apart they from They can't be upset about campaigning because everyone knows that the campaigning's happening all the time. Yeah. Uh, but appa- apparently some people weren't happy with the tone that Paul Giamatti was taking in certain interviews. And mm. it became a bit of a thing. And, you know, and so then he didn't get a nomination, which if you're nominating a film for Best Picture and you're nominated for Best Director, and you're nominating for the best screenplay, and then you don't nominate the person who is in 95% of that film as the main performance, it makes absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. Particularly when, you know, Sandman and Virginia Madsen are getting nominations. Like, it's uh, it's just, you know, it's just such a weird, such a weird thing. Um, 
yeah so you know he hasn't won anything yet i'm hoping at some point before you know before he ends up getting some kind of i don't know honorary oscar or something you know i'm hoping that one of his performances gets nominated at some point in the future but uh yeah he's he, we have him here kind of driving her around as we said he he just calls her um you know uh like he's got i i like the the sign he's got is in the disney font and it says you know Walt disney presents pl travers and of course emma thompson is like oh i'm sure he does um you know she's not happy with <laughs> with the chauffeur sign um but yeah like the kind of uh, like a portion of the film is the interactions between the two of them as we said he calls her you know uh pl uh and she's like mrs travers or who is she well she he calls her pl travers and she's like just mrs and he's like okay mrs and that's that's, that's all he calls her for it. the rest of the film yeah and she doesn't call him by any name and it takes until you know almost like you know 75 percent of the way of the film through the film before she actually asks him his first name uh that's how little she kind of cares about uh you know ingratiating herself to all these uh these people um it is it should be noted that of course uh you know she has uh you know it takes us 20 minutes and we get tom hanks playing walt um and they have a cup of tea and she when instructed on how to make the tea she says the phrase a spoonful of sugar uh in the tea um, and there is some discussion here about how long it's taken for them to get the rights um, and how they don't have the rights and because of that she has some stipulations uh which is um that sh there should be no animation in the film and she wants complete script approval <laughs> which you know Walt Disney's like yeah sure why not I promised my daughters 20 years ago that I would get the rights to this um this this book and turn it into a film so you know how about we do that um you know uh and that, this leads them to the first of many scenes where we have uh, the Sherman Brothers and uh, Don DeGrady, as played by Bradley Whitford, uh, best known, of course, for being in The West Wing and also being the butt of many jokes on Twitter uh, from uh, his co-star, whose name escapes me at this point, uh, but he's always joking about how Bradley Whitford is a terrible actor. Uh, in recent years, I'm sure people know Bradley Whitford mostly from Get Out, because I think that's like the biggest thing he's done mm -hmm. uh, in recent years. And obviously when he says that if Obama had run, he would have voted for him a third time. Uh, which, given what happens later on in this film, that film, which I'm not going to spoil, uh, that's a kind of weird thing for him to say. Um, but yeah, um, like I feel like when I think of this movie, I predominantly yes. think of these scenes with P.L. Travers and the Shermans and uh, Don DeGrati, and then also the flashbacks. Like I feel like this is where we've gotten to the core of the movie is these discussions yeah. about the Mary Poppins film mingled with the flashbacks to Australia. With with yeah. Walt being kind of... He comes in... And, like, not not really, but, like, kind of an outsider, which is what mm -hmm. he was with all the films that took place around this time because his focus was on the parks. And, and, and Walt Disney World in Florida. And Walt Disney in World particular. in Florida. Yeah. And at this time as well, as you say, another thing that's not true in this film, Walt Disney wasn't around for this. He basically went on holiday to like Tahiti or something for like two weeks while he, they were doing, the, he was doing, also, doing this particular. He was also going to Florida yeah. scooping out um, or scoping out the, the sites for, for Walt Disney World and, and all that. He, yeah, he, yeah. A lot of his it's, stuff was on the, the DL because uh, when they were doing Walt Disney World, they really wanted to not have they, all they that press. They couldn't make it clear that they were planning to build a park and everything. But yeah. but yeah, at this point, 
his time in the studio was pretty minimal. Yeah. Like, he was still in the studio, but he wouldn't have been in his office this much, probably. Oh. <laughs> and this is yeah. only just a few years before he, he does die, so... It's yeah, this is set in 61, his... and he... Yeah, he dies in 66, so... Uh, yeah, he was, like, uh, as we say, a lot less involved um, in uh, in in producing the films, and, and certainly wouldn't have been this hands-on. Uh, although, he obviously, he did have some involvement, because P.L. Travis did go to L.A., obviously that being the kernel for the idea of this script. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so uh, Melanie Paxton, obviously, is, is in a lot of scenes as Dolly, uh, who is you know the the secretary for uh, Walt Disney, and she has like another Disney connection in that she appears in the films uh, that are just called Descendants, uh, not mm-hmm. the film starring George Clooney, uh, which is The Descendants, uh, where she plays the fairy godmother, who I believe is the principal of some school that has all the kids from various Disney characters, um, and she's yeah, been in basically. all three of basically, the Descendants yeah. films, yeah. Yeah, I haven't watched them myself, but uh, yeah, so she's she's been in those uh, in the last few years. Uh, obviously, you know, those using a lot of Disney properties, kind of like this, you know, taking a Disney property and doing something slightly different with it. Um, you know, so uh, yeah, so she, you know, she's had some involvement in that, but she again, she's in a lot more of the film than you would think uh, because she is effectively spying on PL Travers for Disney. Yeah, we only really see it once. Yeah, we only really see it once in the film where she kind of relates back some of the stuff that's been going on uh, but it's a kind of implied that she's doing it after after every session basically she's kind of reporting back to Walt on uh, on what is exactly happening um, and obviously when we start the script reading they they do the whole you know winds in the east all that kind of stuff um, and then Bert starts singing <laughs> and um, I, who is doing the singing for Bert is it uh, uh, Bradley Whitford um who's playing who's playing the role he starts he he's uh, what mm-hmm. is the word that he says that isn't isn't a real word and she's like no, i think no, no, no. the the sherman's uh, sing- responsible yeah because it rhymes yeah. with constable and, <laughs> yeah and she's like no 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 no. let's not be making up words and the, i love the little cut to bj novak as he hides supercalifragilisticexpialidocious <laughs> underneath mm-hmm. some sheet music so she does not see this definitely made up word um that obviously you know they will be uh uh, they'll be singing about later on. Um, I like it as well. Obviously, this is something which we hear over the end credits where they show the sketches for what the band's house will look like. Now, obviously, we see the sketches and it looks like as it is in the film. So we obviously know that's where they're going to end up. But she wants it to be more like a terraced house in London, which obviously that's where we start the film. We see that, um, you know, where she lives, which I've got to be honest, that house today probably worth three or four million pounds. <laughs> like, that is a very, very, like that is a very, very expensive house. That she's got there, um, and uh, you know that uh, that's that's another thing that whenever I've watched Mary Poppins, I'm like, you know, this this guy like works at a bank as a teller, and he's afforded a house that's got two maids and so many rooms. I'm like, that, how much is he making at this bank? Like, you know, there's a whole story about like tuppence, but it seems like that guy's making a lot more than you would expect. You know, and um, we never see what Bert's house look like looks like. But I suspect no. that Bert is in something much more humble. Well, I mean, I, I, I got to be honest with you. When I was growing up and I watched Mary Poppins, I, I just assumed that Bert was homeless. And yeah, you kind of yeah. get that get that assumption. You know, he's doing the street yeah. art and, and he's a chimney sweep on the side. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what, what Bert's living on. Although I would say these days, uh, chimney sweeps are highly qualified. So mm-hmm. he would probably be in a very good house. Uh, just on the money he would make specialized specialized uh, labor 
like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, to be a chimney sweep, you'd normally have to be uh, over here gas qualified, so you'd have to be able to deal with. Uh, oh. you know, most gas engineers make a lot of money, so I I work with someone who is actually in the British Association of Chimney Sweeps. Um, that is a, a real thing that exists. Um, you know, yeah, because these days, if you've got a like a fire that has a chimney, you that's a that's an expensive house you're in. You're not in a, mm. <laughs> you, you know, so. Uh, yeah, and they have to be swept, obviously, because if you don't, you just end up, you know, with a lot of pollution in your own house. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to not have it swept. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we, we see a number of the, the kind of costumes and the props. Uh, obviously, P.L. Travis has some opinions on all of this. She doesn't like the house. She's not a fan of the introduction of suffragettes into the movie. And... Mm. I think notoriously she was anti-suffragette in real life, so that kind of makes sense. Um, and then we see some of the props for the like the the you know the talking bird umbrella thing, which if you've seen Mary Poppins, uh, which you know why would you see this film if you haven't seen Mary Poppins would be my bigger question. Uh, you obviously know that these are the things that will end up being in the film, um, even though she has opinions on them. We kind of know that those can get overridden a little bit, um, you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I I I think uh, I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, the whole this is where she's like, we she doesn't want the color red in the film, and uh, this is where I think you know the the Sherman brothers and and uh, and Don kind of figure out that he doesn't have the rights. Um, again, not true. In real life, they had the rights; they're all secured. There was no problem with that. But uh, you know, obviously, as a through line in this film, we we kind of see that being like the conflict. And PL trying to effectively come up with the most unreasonable things she can think of, so that Walt Disney can kind of, you know, object to them, and then the film won't get made. Um, you know, she's effectively trying to sabotage the film, mm, and yeah. this is where they do play supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which I think, again, I mean, you know, we should say, you know, Jason Schwartzman, obviously, we already said great actor. I really do like B.J. Novak in this because, uh, you know, he is kind of playing. Um, kind of the the I mean at the two he seems to be like the quieter obviously they're both very enthusiastic but like he's the one who who at some you know he's the one who kind of objects to the fact that PL is basically trying to sabotage the film and you know the fact that she doesn't want it to be a musical and the you know to have no animation in when obviously what it's known for these days is uh, you know the way that the animation was done and which was ve which was like very tricky um mm -hmm. there's some very interesting kind of like breakdowns of how they did the scene with the penguin wait waiters and you know how uh dick van dyke and and uh julie andrews were kind of not like kind of on blue like blue screens because the technology for that didn't really kind of exist but the way that the animators had to draw like they they kind of acted as if the things weren't there and then they kind of drew over them but there's there's times when the penguins go behind things and they emerge out the other side and there's some very kind of clever techniques that they used um, and the way they used the cameras. And uh, after the film was made, like uh, those cameras were destroyed and nobody could figure out how to like rebuild them. And they were never able to do the same thing again on any of the films, like the way they did the animation on Mary Poppins. It was literally like a once in a lifetime thing where they managed to get the cameras to work because they had to project stuff back onto stuff. And it was it's very, very complicated. You can find some good behind the scenes explanations on the Internet about how they did it. But basically, after the film ended, they ended up breaking the stuff and not being able to do it again. Uh, which is why in some of the films that did the same kind of thing, like Bedknobs and Broomsticks, the animation was not quite as good. I mean, the animation was good, but the interaction with the people was less. It didn't. Right, it didn't different kind of different work. techniques. 
Yeah. So, um, but yeah, you know, I, I mean, again, like, uh, I, I think obviously the film has to have a certain level of conflict. So the idea that they don't have the rights is what they've chosen. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that's, you know, that's kind of an interesting way to do it. Um, but, you know, and in between this, I would say the first half of the film, the stuff in Australia isn't super important. Other than showing that Colin Farrell is obviously uh, constantly getting fired by banks, apparently, like that's a, th- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a thing the, that keeps yeah. happening. The the yeah. main in the first half, I'd say the main Australia stuff that they establish is Colin Farrell is a fun dad, but he struggles with doing his job, and there's some alcohol involved. Yeah, and I mean I'd say that's you know, about it. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, you know we we uh, like when they're doing the the kind of the brainstorming for a spoonful of sugar, uh, we obviously see that PL is not happy with this, <laughs> and she throws the script out of the window. Um, and I, I it like again, it's like you know she. What I find funny is when she first gets to the hotel, she's got all these kind of gift baskets and stuff. She throws out the pears for reasons mm-hmm. we'll find out later. Um, but she kind of puts them all in cupboards and hides them all away, apart from this gigantic Mickey Mouse, um, uh, you know, kind of teddy bear. And at one point, she ends up kind of just in bed with Mickey Mouse. Um, yeah, she, she ends up snuggling it. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously that, I think, is the only thing that she takes back to London uh, from, you know, from Walt Disney is just this gigantic Mickey Mouse. Um, we get a nice scene where we get to see Tom Hanks do a bit of, a, you know, a bit of acting because uh, he's been kind of like not really in the film at this point like it's a lot more like you say it's those scenes in the room where they're kind of showing her the different songs um, and bj novak and jason schwartzman are, you know kind of singing them behind a stand-up piano and then we see walt and he overhears uh you know the kind of the early version of feed the birds uh you know which is uh you know kind of one of the saddest songs in Mary Poppins when I was a kid it always ended up making me cry because I'm like what's going on with this woman who's just the only thing she's got in her life is feeding a bunch of pigeons um <laughs> and like it, again she appears to be homeless but like I don't know it's just it yeah. always felt like a really sad part of the film to me where I'm like I, you know I wish somebody would just give that instead of giving a tuppence like give her a house give her somewhere to live <laughs> like yeah you know, well, I mean, she's making a living, I guess, selling bird feed. But at the same time, you know, pigeons yeah. notoriously cover everything in crap. You don't want to be encouraging them. But I guess <laughs> she's got to make a living. Uh, Feed the Birds was actually Walt's favorite uh, song. And for um, the rest of his life, after they after he heard the, the song for the first time, he would have uh, the Sherman Brothers play it for him occasionally. He he loved yeah. that song a lot. Yeah, so this scene is is kind of a nod to something that's that's known as one of Walt's activities at the studio. Is he he would you know just kind of walk in, or he, or he'd have them you know called into his office, and you know they'd just play the song so he could meditate on it a little bit, and um and so I think this is as far as like the the soft biography of of Walt Disney. Um, in this film, I think this is definitely a nod to that activity yeah. that he would have for for the rest of his life. Um, and so they're they're kind of evoking that by saying like, "Oh, this is the first time that he's doing it." They don't explain or give any of the no. the additional detail about it being part of his <laughs> his his life until he died. But the, it was one of the things that he would do regularly. It was one of his his favorite things. Yeah, 
And I, I, I think, uh, yeah, like, I mean, I guess they're relying on you to go on, like, IMDb trivia or something to figure out. This or or it's an Easter egg for those who know. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think Tom kind of does put across that, that, you know, that obviously hearing the song, Walter's kind of instantly fallen in love with it. Like, he's, you know, Im- immediately he's smiling and he's enjoying the song. And you're like, oh, obviously this is a song that Walt Disney must have had a connection to. Because... They haven't shown him, like, you know, smiling while playing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious mm. or, you know, Spoonful of Sugar or anything. Like, this is the first time he's kind of interacted uh, with either of the Sherman brothers while they're kind of singing a song. Um, and we then get, uh, I would say, kind of the best use of the flashbacks uh, combined within a song where, you know, they decide to play uh, the song uh, about investing in a bank. I can't remember for the life of me what the actual proper title of that song is. Fiduciary um, Fidelity uh, it, it, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's like a <laughs> There's three F's in the song, and I can't or in the song title, and I can't remember what it is. Yeah, um, Every, everyone's favorite I'm, banking song. <laughs> yeah, I, I, do you know what? Like, obviously, Mary Poppins is a notoriously long film, uh, f- deliberately, um, apparently, so that uh, parents could leave their kids in the cinema and go off and do something else for a couple of hours. <laughs> uh, that was the design of Walt Disney. Like, all of his live action films are extremely long, um, and. Like I do, I like I do enjoy this film, this this song in the film because of the way it is performed. Um, you know, when you hear it in the film, it's like, uh, like just the way, like the kind of the, like the staccato way of singing the different words, and the kind of like the again, like the kind of I don't know, almost like the horror aspect of them, like trying to take this two pence off a kid, and <laughs> invest it in like you know oil fields or something like like the kind of everything they list is something that a kid would be like i don't care about any of those things (laughs) like stop telling me about like you know kind of fiduciary responsibility even if it's in song i don't really want to invest this money in anything um Mm -hmm. you know it's like uh, and what's and the bank's not doing it for the benefit of the kid yeah oh no 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 yeah um get them while they're uh, young (laughs) <laughs> what I think is interesting is the fact that the Sherman brothers do refer to it as tuppence as well, uh, because when I was younger, that was how everybody would refer to a two pence piece was as tuppence. Um, but that was more we over here we changed our money in the early seventies. We went decimal uh, because our previous money made absolutely no sense <laughs> at all. Uh, there were two hundred and forty pennies to a pound. Don't ask me why. Uh, there were twenty shillings, and each of those was five pennies. It's just insane. Um, we kept the shillings, but we just turned them into a, a five pence piece. But yeah, so tuppence, you know, it, we do have a two pence piece. Obviously, that's you know, that's that we've had that for many years. And so the fact that they do, you know, they say about the tuppence, and that's in the song, is kind of interesting uh, because that is like a very British thing. There are some things in Mary Poppins that aren't very British, uh, but the fact that they say tuppence is one of the the better things. Um, but this is kind of into like the kind of the words of this song are intercut with. Uh, Colin Farrell at like some kind of Australian fair giving a speech and the speech is just the lyrics of the song as imagined by P.L. Travers because uh, we are kind of like flashing between her hearing this song and remembering uh, this thing in Australia uh, where her father was going to present the awards to the kids and again uh, you know the, the kind of like the owner of the bank or something who's got like a really weird beard with like a little cutout on his chin mm-hmm. which I was like that's a, a very specific choice uh, he's like why is this guy doing it again 
you know, the notorious town drunk. Why are we letting him present awards to kids on behalf of the bank? And they're like, but, oh, he's the manager of the bank. But he is the bank manager. So, well, and it seems yeah. like the, the bank is like the sponsor of the town fair. And so yeah. they get to present the awards, but also they get the chance to advertise. So it's, you know, yeah. come to the bank and buy, I mean, it seems like they're saying, you know, buy stocks. And yeah. um, even even if you're a kid. I think I think it's funny because like the like the idea like the idea is that he says oh you know uh, you know can I talk to the kids for a bit you know like can I, you know can I address them and then he starts singing this song from Mary Poppins and and it kind of intertwines with the Sherman brothers singing it um, mm-hmm. And they do the kind of the dramatic thing, which happens in the bank, where basically all the ba- all the bankers kind of like, kind of uh, intimidate the child, <laughs> just to get this two pence off him, uh, which I you know which I thought was kind of funny, um, and and so like, you know that she's remembering this. I kind of, I'm not kind of completely with Roko's glasses because obviously she, you know, she remembers him, um, you know, falling off the stage at the end. Uh, because he is so um, he is so drunk, um, um, but like in in between they have you know the kind of the the he's 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 kind of talking about the investments and stuff that appear in the in the actual kind of song, and then like everyone claps uh, in the in the flashback just before he falls off the stage, um, and this is of course where PL then gets angry because she doesn't like this version of Mr. Banks. Uh, which obviously she is confusing with her own father, and she's she's referring to him, saying he's not this, he's not that, and um, you know the understandably the Sherman brothers and Don are a bit confused as to what she's talking about. Yeah, uh, she, but in she's, some ways, she's experiencing some trauma that's yeah, been activated. In some ways, yeah, it is it is understandable because obviously in the film, Mister Banks does do stuff that is kind of terrible <laughs> like he just mm-hmm. rips up the kids like song like letter where they they're, they're talking about what they want in a nanny just throws it in a fire like you know he does stuff that obviously at the time he's just you know he's just he's just a, a guy who you know uh is trying to work and trying to maintain this gigantic house that they live in um spending <laughs> which, long which, hours at the bank in in modern times i look that's like i've got to make the money i was like well you could downsize yeah, you could you could downsize yeah. instead of being stressed about moving yeah. up in the bank and uh, and and mistreating your children. But at the time, I guess that wasn't in the thought process. The option of downsizing to a single maid, <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. or anything like that. Um, but I, uh, the other thing I was going to say is in Mary Poppins, like. The way you're describing it, all of it, and the way they they sing the song, and and like pressuring the kid to to give away the money, Mary Poppins really is like a hit piece about banks. It's like, no, banks are bad. <laughs> like they're gonna steal money from children. They're gonna fire your dad. Yep. And they want your dad to be a, a cruel, heartless man. I was like, yeah. When I was a kid, I I hated the idea of a bank. I was like, I don't want to go in a bank. They're gonna try and like take my pennies. Yeah. And and he's saying as well, like you know, uh, railways through Africa, dams across the Nile, fleets of ocean greyhounds, majestic self-amortizing canals, plantations of ripening tea. It's like I'm I'm a child. I'm not interested in any of that. I really don't care about infrastructure in a different continent. I just want my two pence so I can go and feed some birds. That's 
you know, there's a lady out there who's going to the trouble of singing Tuppence a Bag. She's made it easy for me to mm-hmm. remember. So, like, you know, stop trying to convince me. Um, but yeah, they're, this they're is probably not like... even arguing it so that it's like, look, you can like put your money in the bank. Like the argument doesn't seem to be very heavily. You can put your money in the bank so that you have money when you need it. It's like, no, put the money in the bank so we can use it. Yeah, we can we can <laughs> yeah. do industrial stuff like, and be part of the of the corporate industrial complex. Yeah, and in Mary Poppins, it's all these older white white gentlemen towering over these two small children, like very intimidating and scary. And it's just like, no, I. It's like, don't. come on, guys! This kid's not even wearing full length pants yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... And, uh, yeah, like, I mean, obviously, later on in when we actually see the screening of the film, uh, all of the scenes will exclusively be about things that Mr. Banks has done or is doing. Uh, and we do see about Michael saying that he's scared to go back to his father because of, you know, the, the run that he caused on the bank. Um, you know, where he's like, I, again, I, I like it's a really weird subject matter for a kid's film. But the whole thing where they're like. People start yelling about how they're trying to take money from this kid and there's no money in the bank and then there's suddenly run on the bank. It's like, this is this is insane. What's going on? Like, but yeah. Um But I mean I like this is where I did like like I say, for the first half of the film, the flashbacks not really achieving much, just kind of showing us Colin Farrell is a fun dad. That's pretty much the gist. Um and then from this moment on, I think the flashbacks kind of change a little bit. Uh because obviously when he's on stage uh, Colin Farrell does the thing that you know. I mean, uh, the film is obviously set. Well, this flashback is set in 1906, so it's not quite Victorian. But you know, if you see anyone in Victorian times coughing up a bit of blood, things are all over. It's, basically, yeah. It's like ah, uh, uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. The universal symbol of this guy is going to die very soon. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we see in the flashback as well that Ginty. You know, obviously Colin Farrell's in bed. He's you know sick. Um, they never really kind of specify exactly what he is sick with, um, but I think it's meant to be tuberculosis. That, that would is... be my guess as yeah. well, yeah. because because of the coughing up blood, and also because they like moved out to the country. I kind of wondered, it's like, oh, is that supposed to be part of like? Well, one, he probably lost his job, but two, it's like, yeah. okay, we can make the excuse that I'm doing it for my health. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was popular. Doctors did a lot of the time in the early. 20th century prescribe moving to the beach or moving to the country as a way to stop diseases don't think it completely worked uh but yeah uh, yeah we also common get a... for for tuberculosis like to go to colorado oh, yeah. um in the united states <laughs> like yeah get out yeah. get out to outside the cities you know the the open air over here it's uh go to, go to like beach beach resorts like brighton something like that like yeah mm. fresh air fresh ocean air is what will cure you obviously didn't but you know um and we also get in here uh some sleepwalking from the mother uh which apparently in a pg-13 film that is a suicide attempt uh where she just kind of sleepwalks and ginty sees her and then she just ends up in a river or a lake a body of water basically um and then she kind of appears to wake up uh but apparently that was her trying to kill herself uh although it's I not don't, 100 percent I don't think it's really that she's sleepwalking. Yeah, I don't think it's intended to be sleepwalking. Because I have experience with anxiety and depression. And oftentimes when you're in the middle of a panic attack, um, it's not always in the sense that a lot of people um, 
see like an, an attack where you're like hyperventilating and everything. Mm-hmm. And it I, can be you're just completely zoned out and not really thinking properly. And I work in um, the mental health field to some degree. I'm not a therapist, um, but I, I work for a company that that's a, a mental health uh, facility. And in a lot of cases, um, something like a like a suicide attempt um, or self harming is not super like lucid it's it's within the scope of very compulsive behavior um yeah and so this is for for us something that like looks very similar to um like a a compulsive episode Mm -hmm. where she is not totally you know not 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 fully present and so it's but but i wouldn't say it's the same as sleepwalking yeah quite it's you know i just mean when she gets into the water she suddenly uh like snaps out of it basically like she which which can also happen a lot yeah with with someone who's suicidal Mm -hmm. they are suicidal for a period and then they kind of regain composure and 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 control and 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 in many cases that's when they seek help yep yeah I meant sleepwalking as in like she she looks like she's not in control and she's just oh not asleep okay. yeah but yeah, just yeah, kind yeah. of yeah. like so, yeah. so not literal sleepwalking but but she's, not a little sleepwalking she's but just kind of like way. not in control yeah just kind of like uh, you know mm-hmm. uh, just walking without any kind of you know like you say doesn't look like she's really fully there yeah and, yeah. Up and this, to this point uh, having, having a psychological episode yeah and up to this point yeah. they've definitely shown that she's not really doing well and like it could be some no. kind of uh, she has a baby so it could be some kind like of a, postpartum, like a postpartum depression. depression but she also just had to give up everything including uh two maids and a house that she was familiar with and, and then, she's dealing with all her husband's stuff so mm-hmm. she's definitely struggling uh mental health wise and in the night in 1906 like there's uh, there's, there's not a lot there's of not a lot of information for, about that for that yeah and I, like again, again, I say the kind of like there's not like Ruth Wilson. This is probably the only real big scene that she has. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of the film she is, like you say, just kind of a struggling, almost a single mother, given how absent yeah. Colin Farrell is for most of the film uh, in terms of helping out. And again, yeah, they've just had another. They already had the two daughters, and then they have another baby, which they never really reveal uh, if that's a daughter or a son. But you know, we hear it crying as she. Kind yeah, of we don't come back house. to that baby very much. No. Like she's occasionally in the arms, and that's it. Like she's well, holding she, the baby, and then I think they say it's a sister because right before, right as she's leaving, she says, "Take care of your sisters." Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was not saying um, I missed that. But yeah, you know, it, it could very much be you know a postpartum depression. But I mean, it's I and I think pretty um, effectively done to demonstrate like okay, there's there's some there's a psychological mental health factor going on. And now the husband's dying as well. This family is in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, you know, we see uh, PL, you know, on the lot, sitting under a tree. Uh, Paul Giamatti approaches her and then he tells the story of why he's concerned about the weather. Because obviously his daughter is in a wheelchair. And if it's sunny, then she can sit outside. Which I would assume uh, in California, that is pretty much the truth. Ninety-nine percent of the time, most, most, most of, of the, the time, time, yeah, yeah, not a, not a big worry about Even it raining. In the winter. But obviously, yeah, it, it, but obviously, if it it rains, then you know his daughter will have to be inside, and he's you know that's the that's the thing that he's kind of uh, more worried about. You know, that's and you know for somebody who's kind of doing you know raising a, a you know a, a child with a disability, he is relatively upbeat about things 
Um, and, you know, the, I think this is obviously where, you know, uh, PL and uh, and Ralph Bond, although she still hasn't asked him his first name. Um, but, you know, they build, they make like a little thing where he, like he, brought, he brings her some tea. I'm guessing it's not great tea because she decides to make like a little, uh, a little river and pour the tea in rather than, um, you know, they make like a, is it a bandstand that they make um, out of, uh, like, yeah, yeah uh, out some of some leaves and sticks. Yeah, and then she pours the tea away, effectively, <laughs> which I think is a sort of way of saying that he Ralph doesn't know how to make tea properly. Well, um, she said that it's a, it's not uh, proper to drink tea out of a paper cup. <laughs> yeah, she, I was I, say, again, there's a number I, of reasons why she might particularly dislike yeah. this tea. Yeah, I think she's offering excuses to spare Ralph's feelings at this point. <laughs> um, but yeah, we find out obviously Walt Disney has decided, you know, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the yelling about how she doesn't like Mr. Banks. You know, he thinks we've they've got to do something with the script so that Mr. Banks is more sympathetic. Um, and to do this, they take her to Disneyland, um, <laughs> which uh, obviously she does not like. Um, although Ralph is super excited to kind of meet Walt Disney, like, uh, which I thought was like a nice detail, like the fact that Obviously, Walt Disney at this point is, you know, he is the face of the company. He is a huge celebrity. Everyone knows who he is to the point where he's tired of writing out his own signature that he he's has. Got cards. Pre- yeah, he has cards with his autograph already printed on them so that he doesn't have to keep doing that, which I would understand if, you know, if you're in Disneyland and you're Walt Disney, you're going to get a lot of people stopping you and asking for your autograph. So if this makes just sense, you know, a business kind of yeah. thing to just be like, here is my card with my signature already on it. Please don't make me uh, destroy my wrist by constantly giving out uh, autographs. He then also, it also says takes more some... time to take the paper from someone, get the oh, pen yeah, out, yeah. and then hand uh, it back, yeah. and yeah, saving saving time on all ends there basically. Yes, uh, and obviously he you know he does say to some of the kids you know you should get um, you know PL Travers signature. She, I mean, they don't know who she is, and she kind of brushes them off and walks past and doesn't give any signatures out, uh, which I think is a nice little setup for obviously what happens between her and Ralph by the time they get to the end of the film. Uh, and of course, uh, keeping the Mary Poppins uh, theme going, they go to a carousel, and he, he's, he, like, she's like, I'm not getting on like one of the horses. <laughs> Uh, also it should be noted of course Walt Disney skips the queue he's you know obviously it's Walt Disney (laughs) he gets to go to the front of the queue Uh, something obviously you know uh, which I'm sure these days you have to pay a lot of money to do that thing Um, and yeah so he he basically fast pass her onto this carousel and then she's like I'm not going to get on the horse and he's like Pamela get on the horse (laughs) and she then just does uh, and to which he says, oh, by the way, I had a bet that I could get you on one of the rides. And now I've won some money from the guys. <laughs> so like, uh, but also this is where we then also we have some more flashbacks as she's on the carousel, as it goes around to, you know, the fair that was in Australia. Um, and, you know, she catches glimpses of, of Ginty in the mirror, um, you know, as they go around uh, in the flashbacks. We see that Colin Farrell is getting sicker. Uh, he's in bed, coughing up blood all the time. Uh, Rachel Griffiths has arrived uh, as the stern aunt and she basically is there to just say Mary Poppins phrases over and over again. (laughs) She (laughs) only talks in Mary Poppins phrases. That's all she says. Um, You know, again, Rachel Griffiths, Australian, for some reason, English in this film Um, and barely in two scenes. um, And that's it. That's like that's the entire influence of this aunt 
is just her saying some phrases that were then stolen by P.L. Travers, according to this film. Well, uh, although, as I, I said, it was a different aunt. It was... So I don't, you know, it's a, it's a completely different character that's in this film. But still, I mean, I, I mean, I love Rachel Griffiths so much in everything. It's nice to see her here, um, you know. And obviously, the the aunt in this film shares the same name as uh, P. L. Travers. They are both Helens. Um, and I think the they do a lot with just those two scenes to basically establish, like, okay believe as an audience that Mary Poppins is largely based on this woman and assume that she kind of does what Mary Poppins does. So as long as you know Mary Poppins as, as a film, um, then you can take it to, to mean, you know, like she's just speaking in Mary Poppins quotes. It's like, Oh, okay. This is the inspiration for Mary Poppins. It's, <laughs> it's maybe not the most definitely done because she is like you said, pretty much speaking exclusively in Mary Poppins quotes. Um, yeah, and and like the visual representation of her with her bag and everything is very Mary Poppins esque. It's like okay, maybe maybe too much, maybe just like ten percent too much <laughs> yeah. to say like get it, get it. It's Mary Poppins, like she's the Mary Poppins in this story. Yeah, um, but uh, uh, but uh, but I also think like if it had had one more scene of that, I would have been really annoyed by it. And doing it like pretty heavy in one scene, and then um, she's there for for like one other scene where she's not really Mary Poppinsing as much. It's like okay, I got it. The aunt came yeah. came in and and did kind of what Mary Poppins does. Yep. Um, they uh, they 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 present to P. L. Travers. They have they they've fixed the script. Uh, they've come up with which inv- which involves um, uh, Bradley Whitford and. Um, uh, Melanie Paxson going like being on their knees, pretending to play the children in the <laughs> film, and um, Bradley Whitford putting on like a high voice, um, and they they reveal that he fixes the kite, and you know they like the, Mr. Banks basically has become a better father, uh, and they start singing "Let's Go Fly a Kite." PL reluctantly starts tapping her toes, um, and then eventually she starts dancing with Bradley Whitford, which causes uh, Holly to run off to tell Walt. Um, you know that obviously she's singing and dancing um, and they come back in and uh, you know everyone seems to be happy about what's going on in the film except uh, <laughs> P.L. Travers is like how are they going to train all the penguins um, I'm assuming that Walt Disney has you know like a zoo full of penguins that can do various things and you know that's what they're going to do they're going to train up some penguins uh, to which uh, Don is like no they're going to be animated and she's like, I told him I didn't want the film to be a cartoon, and he's like, No, 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 the like that's not the that's not what it is. But obviously, like, she's it's runs not a cartoon film. There's a a sequence uh, with yeah. animated yeah. characters. Well, <laughs> well, this is it. Yeah. So when she Too runs to Walt Disney her. to say the deal is off, um, he's like, No, it's just one. It's just one scene of the animation. Like, it's not. It's not going to be the whole film. Uh, which I think is true. In the entire film, is that that is the only animated sequence? They jump into well, the, the whole. I mean, it's, it's that whole Jolly a, Holiday yeah. sequence. Sequence. Yeah. So it, it it's like at least ten minutes. Yeah. Um. But oh, it's a healthy chunk of the film. Like, but the, yeah. it's not. But it's not the film. No. After after they jump through the the chalk the chalk drying the sidewalk drying um then it's animated and then they jump out and it's not at all yeah. ever again. Yeah, well, it rains, doesn't it? And that's how they end up. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. That that ends the sequence. Makes everybody sad that it's rained and. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's got supercalifragilisticexpialidocious in there and uh, Jolly Holiday. 
and all the stuff with the penguins. With yeah, the, I guess the, I guess two whole songs stuff. and yeah, and the carousel and everything. So so maybe it might even be like as much as twenty minutes. I don't know. Yeah, it's a it's a big portion because you've got the whole horse race thing, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, with the the is it is it the fox who's like yeah, there's a fox you know, hunt. Kind of, mm-hmm. Yeah, joining in saying view hello and he's like view hello, uh, which I don't think is a real thing that they say at fox hunts. I wouldn't know. I hate fox hunts, but still. Uh, I, I think the never, accent to that never fox even is a been invited genius. to a fox hunt, so <laughs> yeah. you're probably that much closer to knowing anything about them than we are. Yeah, um, but yeah, so obviously she's not happy with that. Even after Walt Disney explains, the whole film is not going to be animated. Just this one tiny sequence, um, which obviously will cost lit- like the most expensive part of the film is, is animating <laughs> all these different things uh, to interact with real people. Um, so that's it. She's done. Uh, she goes to the airport um, and then, you know, this is where Ralph kind of reveals that, you know, he'd been talking to his daughter and, you know, kind of she figured out who this was and he didn't realize that he'd been driving this person around and he really enjoys her book. And, you know, he says he's a slow reader, but, you know, he's getting through it. And then she offers to sign it. And obviously, you know, which I in the film, you know, this is probably my favorite kind of interaction where like, you know, she's obviously seen that Walt Disney goes around parks handing out his signature, and you know she's there, and obviously she sees that Ralph is a true fan, and I think she realizes kind of like what Walt Disney feels when he's in Disneyland, surrounded by fans of his work, um, and so she's like, you know, but then then she's like, what's your name? <laughs> because obviously this entire time she hasn't asked at all, and he says that his name is Ralph, and she signs it to Ralph and his daughter. Um, and you know and then decides to go back home to london because uh, she's had enough of all this nonsense um and obviously you know this is it's a nice moment you know paul giamatti like we said a great actor and this is mm-hmm. you know this is just a, a great interaction between the two of them um again i don't think ralph is a real person not based on anyone it's just a fictional person that they've put in so that they could kind of have this change of heart um you know again she's still refusing to sign the rights away uh, obviously, again, not a real thing, but, you know, as the tension in the film is that. Um, and so, she, you know, she's decided to, to go back to London. Um, and it's only once she's back in London. And I kind of don't know how this has happened, because obviously, uh, like, there's no Google or anything. But so this is the only way that, like, they can find this out. Um, all of the expenses come in, uh, you know, first class flights, very expensive hotel, all the tea in the world. And they find out that it's being charged to someone called Helen Goff. And obviously, uh, Walt is like, who the hell is that? And they have to say, well, that's her real name. And he's like, well, who the hell is who the hell is Travers then? Uh, as as viewers, I don't think up until this point it's been revealed to us who Travers is and where that name comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we, we get Walt Disney flying all the way back to London. Um, but in between, Travers does actually die. Um, and obviously, you know, the mother tries to stop uh, Ginty from going in to see her dead dad, um, but her aunt is like, "No, let her go in." And we do, and we see Colin Farrell just lying there in bed, um, and like, kind of, I, I, it's weird because like, um, I'm not sure how um, Walt Disney figures out that it's Travers Goff is her father's name. I guess he, you know, he's got some money, so he can do a bit of research. I mean, maybe um, he like calls calls her agent or something. It's like, what's the maybe. Deal? Yeah, what's going on? Why, why is, why is she, 
you know, not wanting to sell me the rights after 20 years. We've already basically done 75% of the film. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, tell me what she's really called. Um, and so he goes to London and, you know, Walt Disney knocks on the door uh, and, she, you know, she obviously wasn't expecting him. Uh, and we get, you know, some classic Tom Hanks acting as he relays the story of, of how he grew up and how, you know, they lived in uh, a state, which I forget the name of. Which state were they in now? Where it's cold. Uh, uh, it was either Missouri or it was can can was it Kansas City in can- Kansas City in, in, in Missouri. Missouri or yeah. it may have been to Chicago. Confuse, he's he's lived to confuse he, everybody. Uh, yeah. Kansas City, yeah. Missouri. Get it together, Missouri and Kansas. Have one <laughs> Kansas City and just put it in Kansas. Don't put it in Missouri. You're trying to co- deliberately confuse people. I think it's partly in <laughs> Kansas yeah, it's, it's, and it's, it's, Missouri. It's, it's oh, it's in both. The border. Yeah. Yeah, I know but the that does not help. Through it, but it? yeah, he was. No. I, he's lived in Chicago. He lived in Chicago. He lived in Kansas City, and then he lived in a little town called Marceline, um, Missouri. Yeah. But they they um, usually talk about. Um, I, I'm pretty sure it, this was definitely in Missouri, so I'm pretty sure it was the Kansas City yeah. Times. Uh, so he relates the story of how his father beat him, and because he owned a newspaper thing, and he was too cheap to employ, or they couldn't afford. Uh, people to deliver the papers so you know him and his brother would deliver a thousand papers a day in the snow and they wouldn't buy shoes um, and obviously if he didn't do it uh, twice a day his father was going to beat him with a belt and he didn't really do well at school because of this um, and you know uh, I, I, it kind of persuades you know kind of it, it's basically him kind of admitting what his his family life was actually like Um in the way of saying to her, you know, I understand that your family life also wasn't great. Um, and, you know, that kind of persuades her. She's like, yeah, OK. Uh, I'll sign the rights. <laughs> and so she does. Again, they already had the rights. This wasn't a thing that needed to happen. And I'm not even sure that this this entire thing actually happened. Uh, though I'm sure the details of Walt Disney's uh, you know, early life uh, were kind of reasonably accurate. Uh, in terms of Elias at, at least reasonably, at accurate. least re- he he definitely yeah. did do the 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 newspaper, the newspaper routes, routes are very are, are um, definitely accurate. Yeah, and the relationship yeah. with his dad, his dad's relationship pretty... wasn't great until he was an adult. He was more close to his mom. Um, yeah, and and he probably had the type of discipline that would have been common yeah. in the time. Um, but yeah, so this, you know, this kind of, this persuades uh, PL. She signs away the rights. She's like, okay, make the film. Even though I'm sure at this point they pretty much made, you know, they've made a big start on what the film was. Because, you know, it's it, from this point, it's going to take three years before the film comes out. And some of that animation took literally months and months and months. <laughs> so I think they probably were already working on the film before this happened. Um, but uh, yeah, and... So obviously this, you know, the the payment from Walt Disney kind of uh, reinvigorates her and she starts writing a book. She rehires back her uh, maid to, you know, make her tea. Um, and she already has the sequel in mind. Although we should say in real life, the sequel she mentions, which I think is Mary Poppins in the Kitchen, uh, didn't come out f- until like the mid 70s. <laughs> and so uh, if she started writing it in like 62... It's going to take her 13 years before it comes out. So it's a bit early to have the title. But, you know, uh, the, they just uh, want to George get George R.R. R. Martin of her day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, at least she actually finished the book. 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, but I mean, I what, what I what I find kind of interesting about this is like it's it's just a shorthand to be like, oh, she's happy again and she's writing, and you know mm-hmm. that was the problem at the start of the film where she had no money and now she's got money, she can do this. Uh, but we find out uh, that Walt Disney doesn't want her at the premiere <laughs> because obviously. <laughs> I think he realizes she's not going to enjoy the film and she's probably going to start saying bad things and the press are going to be there. And obviously, she, you know, she, he doesn't want that happening. Um, you know, he wants, he, you know, he says he says to his assistant, I, I need to protect the picture. Um, but obviously uh, her assistant disagrees with this notion and kind of sends an invite, uh, you know, to PL Um and in, you know, again, her 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 you know agent is like, are you going to go to the premiere? And he, she's like, no, why would I do that? Um, but then you know, she decides, yes, yeah, she's going to go to the premiere in LA. Uh, again, I think I think originally, like in in real life, she was already in America, and so they, I don't know if if Walt Disney purposely didn't uh, invite her or not, but she was like they thought that she was going to the London premiere mm. and she was actually going to be in America during the, um, LA premiere and, um, yeah. sh- and then was like, Hey, I'm here. Yeah. Come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She shows up and announces, she's like, Oh, I'm sure you just forgot to send me the ticket or it got lost by the American postal system. And, Oh, you know, uh, Walt is like, yeah, sure. We'll send them to <laughs> your hotel room straight away. Um, yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, at the premiere, uh, where they uh, the the production recreated the original uh, Grauman's Chinese Theatre, uh, they took a portion of street and kind of built up this facade and made it look like it used to look. Um, uh, you know, we see her in the film, and you know, all the parts of the film we see are just about Mr. Banks and what he is like, and you know, we see some stuff about the kids and all that kind of stuff, um, and then we see, uh, you know, let's go fly a kite at the end. Um, uh, which of course you know was the first kind of um, you know thing that they kind of discussed with her, and then also we go back on the flashbacks and we we have Colin Farrell doing the voiceover again, and we basically end up full circle back where we started, um, with her uh, crying during the film, uh, which apparently she did, uh, but not because she was happy with the film, because she was incandescent with rage, because she hated the adaptation, and apparently she could barely contain herself during the premiere, and she didn't make a scene. You know, we see some pictures of... Um, a nice touch during the end credits is we see pictures from the premiere and, you know, from the you know the making of the film. Uh, occasionally, some of the names of the actors match up with the real people uh, that are shown next to it. Um, and, uh, yeah, she looked, you know, reasonably happy at the premiere, uh, but apparently in real life, she absolutely hated this film. Uh, but the, the she Mary also, Poppins, whenever the uh, press she, tried to talk to her, she was kind of nice. She like, was she, gracious. She was gracious. She she yeah. never really uh, went off. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she never like bad mouthed it in public. Um, but she put it in her will that Walt Disney wasn't allowed to adapt any of, of the Mary Poppins books into films. So... <laughs> Uh yeah I I mean you know so she obviously held a grudge uh, you know yeah like it was it wasn't like she was like oh yeah sure you know like it was like no don't ever do that again and I'm almost I mean I don't know if Mary Poppins Returns uh, is based on any of the books or if it's just a completely original um, I, I don't know I don't know I feel like it's probably just an original but I'm I'm not one hundred percent sure yeah because uh, I 
don't oh apparently uh no it's just the the basically it's just the character um you know it's just based on the character of mary poppins there's no actual story um on that in that film that is 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 based on a uh on any actual films apparently the, they'd they'd been trying to get the that film made since uh the 1980s but obviously so it's like almost 40 years in production before they eventually they finally managed to get it um made uh, uh yeah even roy e disney uh wrote to <laughs> pl travis and saying please can we make a sequel and she was like no you can't um <laughs> Yeah, so they obviously that's why they had to base it on original material because they still legally cannot make any adaptations of the books that she wrote uh, after that film. So yeah, but like we say, she didn't like in public. She didn't really say anything bad about the film, uh, but it was known in private that she basically hated it. And um, I think it's funny that in this in Saving Mr. Banks, they take her kind of crying, which apparently did happen at the film, <laughs> like at the, at the premiere. She was like so annoyed at what happened and kind of heartbroken that the, the film was you know everything that she told them not to make it um you know it was it, i mean it is a very disney film like it is a very disney adaptation mm -hmm. of that character um and so obviously her anger is presented here as her being emotionally moved um uh but yeah uh and as we said like they have the real recordings so they play some of those in the end credits uh richard sherman was alive when this film was made and he was a consultant uh you know so obviously he could give pointers um uh, i'm not sure if his brother was alive in the film obviously his DJ brother Novak. died i think in 2012 yeah. um so just but, as this film was in production basically yeah but he's he's actually still alive today yes oh yeah oh no i didn't want to imply that richard sherman was dead <laughs> um he's 93 so hanging in there yeah um but yeah uh, like he yeah I mean you know the the work that they did I mean you know after Mary Poppins they did so many other I mean you know the Jungle Book you know yep. everything in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang um, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks those films aren't quite as good as Mary Poppins but you know <laughs> still you know they wrote some nice songs for them um, you know and, and uh, of, of and several uh, several uh, songs for, for the parks as well yes yeah uh, did they do It's a Small World after all? Uh, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the um, uh, Robert B. Sherman, um, not Robert, Richard, it's a bit confusing. Uh, he also did some uh, work on um, Christopher Robin, uh, which is directed by uh, Mark Forster. Who uh, you know did some uh, did uh, Finding Neverland and Monsters Ball uh, and stuff like that, and also worked with Tom Hanks, uh, or is working with Tom Hanks on a film called A Man Called Otto, uh, which should be out later this year. So uh, there's another connection to the Sherman brothers. Mark Forster worked with them, and he's now working with Tom Hanks. Uh, so yeah, um, I forgot to ask at the start, but I'll ask now. Did either of you see this at the cinema? I'm not sure. It I'm... came out in 2013, which is the same year as Frozen, and I saw Frozen several times in theaters. I don't think I saw this in theaters. I'm pretty sure that I never saw it uh, in the theater. I, I'm confident that the first time I saw it was was a DVD. Like I said, I saw it in the cinemas apparently two or three weeks before it was officially released, so I don't know how... I don't know happened. how you pulled that off. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. That's the I, wildest I can't thing. Even... 
Yeah, and the the thing, the annoying thing is, uh, my film tickets for 2013, uh, my uh, cinema changed the way they print tickets, and so they just did them as like receipts rather oh. than as. So the all the tickets, all the kind of information is kind of rubbed off on them, so I can't. Our theaters yes. all do that now uh, too, and, and I they hate all it. they all do it e- as e tickets too, and our children. They'll, love having physical things they'll never and have so the, uh... they're very upset that they they didn't when we took them to go see Encanto they they didn't get an actual yeah the, they'll never have the ticket stubs hard ticket and yeah. we're like I'm sorry <laughs> well my cinema does e-tickets but I insist on always printing them out so <laughs> I saw Encanto with my mom and my niece um, and I printed out the tickets, you know, so if she I don't know if she's kept the ticket but I've kept my tickets so if she does need evidence that we saw it uh, then I have my ticket. But yeah, since like 2015, I've been a lot more careful and I've always managed to scan my tickets in very quickly so that I have a copy of them because I know that they have a tendency for all this ink to rub off these days. So if I don't do that, there'll be no record. So yeah, 2013-14, those tickets. I saw a lot of films. We saw like almost 300 films in the space of two years. A wow. lot of tickets to scan in. Most of them, immediately the ink started coming off. So I've got a list of the films I saw, just not... So if this was a this was this some kind of preview that came out a couple of weeks before it was meant to come out, I don't know how I managed to see it early, but uh, yeah. Um, so I think we said about as much as we can about saving Mister mm-hmm. Banks. So obviously we have to uh, give our judgments, um, and I will say uh, obviously at this point you definitely know it's T Hanks or no T Hanks, uh, and let's start with Kestra. Kestra T Hanks, no T Hanks to saving Mister Banks. It's a T Hanks for me. I really like this film, and I really like how Tom Hanks uh, portrays Walt in it as well. He he does a really good job at um, being Walt without being too much Walt. Like you still see Tom Hanks in it as well. It's 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 not overdone, right? It could yeah. very easily become like an impersonation, and exactly. it doesn't quite dip into that. It's a portrayal, yeah, not an impersonation. Um, I'll give it a, a T. Hanks, probably not quite as resoundingly. Because I have, I have issues with the idea. It's like, oh, but if it's so inaccurate, and if she really, you know, comes out of, at the end and being upset, I'm like, I don't know why we had to make this movie where it feels like, you know, she comes around. When in reality, yeah. it's like ah, ultimately nobody really came around. Everyone kind of stuck to their stuff, and and <laughs> and there were a lot of compromises, and and that means that nobody was super happy in the end. Um, and so you don't quite get the. I mean, and it feels weird to be like, ah, oh, but it's not very real. Um, as if it, and if it weren't so heavily implying a sense of reality um, in some of the the interactions and everything, I'd probably feel a little more comfortable with it. Um, it so so with a suspension of disbelief. Oh, this is really nice and charming, but knowing how fully reality opposes the the ending of the film. Um, it feels a little questionable to me, which is something that I feel with a lot of, um, with, with a lot of, um, biographical or, or true events type stories. It's like, okay, you've got to have, you know, a certain percentage of alignment. And I think this is maybe a, a few percentage points out of alignment for me to be fully, fully on board. Yeah. I mean, what I'll say, obviously, I mean, what I'll say is obviously, uh, on the poster, you know, the kind of the, the most, like the poster that you see the most is the one with uh, Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson standing next to each other and their shadows are Mary Poppins and Mickey Mouse. Um, and like, I think that's kind of interesting because it's like, 
Yeah, I guess, like, I mean, to me, Mickey Mouse, like, isn't really, like, the personality of Walt Disney. Like, like I don't think of I don't think of him as that kind of personification. Obviously, he's the mascot, but it's like, okay. And P.L. Travers obviously was known for being, you know, not as kind as Mary Poppins is. <laughs> but so it's mm-hmm. like, I get, like, like the, the fact that, that that's the choice for the poster with, like, those shadows, it's clever. But at the same time, you're like, yeah, this is not completely accurate. And I should say, Emma Thompson obviously is, you know, wonderful in this. Oh, um, oh yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. We, we probably yeah. have, because it's the Tom Hanks podcast, probably have not <laughs> yeah. emphasized that as much as, as it should have been yeah. throughout this episode. She's I feel like it, it goes without saying, scene. but yeah, yeah. So, she, you know, she is really good. Um, and obviously that, you know, uh, this film was released when it was because they were trying to get nominations for her um, in this part. Um, she's already won a couple of Oscars, so I don't know that she needed another one. But yeah, th- like obviously they were trying to Oscar bait with this. Um, and she, uh, interestingly, she didn't have a wig. She basically grew her hair out a little bit and then they styled it exactly like P.L. Travers' hair. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's that's the kind of attention to detail I like. But yeah, I think this film is like, you know, 60% her. And then yeah. it's about, you know, maybe 15% Walt Disney. That's what and I was going to rest. Yeah, and then and then the re- and then and then and then a portion of it is you know the Sherman Brothers, which I mean, again a, like a BJ big Novak dose and of Colin Farrell. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, yeah, and then the rest is kind of Colin Farrell, you know, playing kind of uh, as we said like a fun dad who gets drunk, and uh, you know, and then like maybe like one percent of like uh, you know uh, the the aunt who inspires Mary Poppins, um, but yeah, I mean. It's, I, I would say T. Hanks, uh, but as with, you know, probably a number of the films that I've, you know, given T. Hanks to recently, probably going back to Charlie Wilson's War, you know, this kind of streak of uh, biographies um, that Tom Hanks has been in. Or, you know, I mean, in, in particular this, we've got the previous film was Captain Phillips and the next one's Bridge of Spies. That's three biographies in a row. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, the fact... Well, and uh, he was, and he's, um, he's Sully, he's... Oh, yeah, yeah. In the post, he's somebody... Uh, I haven't yeah. seen that film yet, so yeah. Um, and Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, of course, is uh, oh, you know, right. obviously, uh, yeah. yeah, big big biography so, time. Yeah. So, but uh, again, but this is like less him and more Emma Thompson. Um, but I, mm-hmm. like, I probably not. I'm probably never going to watch this film ever again. Um, and I, I, I think I say that of Bridge of Spies as well, and um, you know, uh, also probably Charlie Wilson's one, like, you know, these are enjoyable films, and if people are like, oh, is it a good film? I'd say, yeah, okay, you know, you know, if you've got two hours to spare, this is the shorter, because, you know, Captain Phillips is more than two hours, and Bridge of Spies is way more than two hours. <laughs> um, so this is, and obviously Cloud Atlas, you know, before that was, you know, what, two hours, 50? So this is the shorter of the films in this little run. Um, so for two hours, I think it does quite well. Um, and as I said, like, the... Um, you know the the like the the Sherman brothers like are portrayed so well by B.J. Novak and Jason Schwartzman. Mm-hmm. I wish yeah. we just had a bit more of them, like that, um, that's you know, true, and 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 a tiny bit more of Walt as well. Just I mean the scenes between him and Emma Thompson obviously are great, um, but like I feel like this film needed just a tiny bit more of of this just, just kind of the behind the scenes of the film. Like if that's if that's what if that's what this film is meant to be about, then that feels like that's where we should be spending some time. But it like all of those scenes are a delight, but it feels like there's just not enough in the film, um, you know. And there, apparently there is a documentary about this, uh, the making of this thing that came out in like two thousand two. That was like Australian, um, 
uh, which was kind of the basis for Kelly Marcel wanting to write the film because she felt the story of P.L. Travers kind of resisting giving the rights to Walt Disney was an interesting story. Um, but yeah, I, I like I probably I'm not going to say never going to watch this film again because you know if somebody was like, oh, let's watch Saving Mr. Banks, I'd be like, okay. Uh, but if there's a film that you want to watch where Tom Hanks saves someone, and then Private Ryan is probably the person that I would prefer he saved. Um, out <laughs> he's of the probably two. Um, more he's, he's in more that in film that than. <laughs> yeah. So obviously um, more saving there. Yeah, and I, I and obviously uh, you know as this episode goes up, we're about a month away from Elvis, so another biopic. <laughs> so we'll see. Oh, man. Uh, we'll see how because again that feels like that's a film where if it's caught if you're calling it Elvis and it's directed by Baz Luhrmann uh, which is something I'll have to tolerate to go and see that film uh, you're like how much Tom is going to be in playing Tom I think for only the second time in his career playing a character called Tom um, I think his character in Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close was called Tom as well uh, but everyone called him Thomas so um, but yeah so uh, like it's going to be interesting to see what his Colonel Tom Parker is like and how much of him is actually in that film because again that feels like a film that's probably going to be about 25% Colonel Tom Parker 75% Elvis um but you know we'll we'll see how much how much tom we actually get in that film when it comes out um but like i said you know tom obviously he loves doing biopics as we said upcoming we've got sully we've got the post we've got a beautiful day in the neighborhood we've got elvis like he just uh at this point he just really likes playing uh real people mm-hmm. um you know something which i blame ron howard for when he did apollo 13 um <laughs> and and then, and obviously, you know, we can also blame Steven Spielberg for continuing it with Catch Me If You Can. But obviously, there's something where I mean, even kind of in the terminal, we talked about that, where it's kind of based on a real life story, but not really. Um, yeah. But yeah, so he just loves doing biopics, and as you said, it's a good it's a good portrayal of uh, of Walt Disney. Um, you know, it doesn't feel too kind of like cartoony. In fact, I would say that about any of these kind of you know the the biography stuff that Tom has done, the characters have never felt too cartoony. Like it's it always feels like he takes the time um, and not in a kind of like uh, Daniel Day-Lewis way, uh, but just in a Tom Hanks, just, you know, doing a bit of acting way. <laughs> like he doesn't go full method at any point. It's not like he tried to run a film studio to kind of get into that character. He just he just listened to some tapes and kind of got the accent a little bit. And that was it. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, it's a it's a pleasant enough watch. Um, so then let's go to plugs uh, is there anything that you wish to plug and I know there's definitely something Disney related that you wish to plug yes Disney Animation Minute Essentials is is our main podcast um, where we break down uh, animated Disney movies we we do like the animation yes um, <laughs> uh, one minute at a time and you can find us uh, on Twitter at the extremely awkward T underscore FT memory. Uh, thanks to both of you uh, for being my guest once more to talk about uh, Disney related films. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I think we could agree in this film that there was a bridge that was being built between P.L. Travers and Walt Disney. But in the next one, we're going to be talking about a bridge of spiders. <laughs>